0: famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Thank you,
1: Ben. Well, today we are starting a new four-week series, a new four-week study in the Old Testament book of... Ruth. Some of you may not even know that a book by that name exists, but it's a wonderful book. One scholar has said about the book of Ruth, no poet in the world has written a more beautiful short story. Another has called it a literary, historical, and theological gem. The book, you may or may not know, is named after one of the main characters in the story, as you just heard. And it features, wonderfully features characters throughout this story that are really just ordinary people uh, that live in a small town. Ordinary people, not kings in a capital city, not prophets in a king's court, as as is so often the case throughout the Bible, absent are any dramatic miracles or any extended psalms or oracles that you also might find in other Old Testament books. And in fact, in Ruth, God is never heard speaking at all. And this feature actually highlights one of the most important themes of the book, and that is the -the behind-the-scenes but ongoing, often hidden activity of God. You see, Ruth is about providence and God's provision. It's about faith and faithfulness. It's about love and loyalty and loss. Today we're starting with the book's first chapter here. You heard Ben read it earlier. Let's take a look, but first let's pause. Jesus, we pray that you would come and be present as we look at your word. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit. and We pray that you would help your words to pierce our hearts, to enliven our minds, to change our lives. Help us to see you, O oh God. Shine the light of your spirit upon your son Jesus. Help us to see him bow our knees. And to love him more because of our time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The story of Ruth starts with heartache and with tragedy. The story takes place, we're told in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. And that's a reference to the days of Israel around the 11th or 12th century BC. And that time in Israel's history was actually filled with a lot of chaos. Moral and spiritual chaos, political and military chaos. And it was in those days that we're told there was a certain man named Elimelech. And we actually know very very little about him. He may have been From a well-to-do family, a couple things throughout this story seem to indicate such. But he wasn't a prophet. He wasn't of noble lineage. He didn't do spectacular things for God in this story. You know, apparently, the God of the universe is also interested in the ordinariness of this man. As one commentator wrote, God who knows when a sparrow falls to the ground and who notices the gift of a cup of cold water to someone in need is also concerned about our ordinariness. Do you know that? Dear fellow ordinary ones, you and your story are significant to God. Elimelech, we're told in verse 2, had a wife named Naomi. She also had two sons. Together they lived in a little town called Bethlehem. But there was a famine in the land, which is sort of ironic, you know, since Bethlehem actually means house of bread. There was no bread, no food to be found, so Elimelech decided to move his family. You know, suddenly leaving your friends, your neighbors, being abruptly uprooted from your home, your livelihood, that can be traumatic. Some of you know this personally. They moved to the east, to the neighboring country of Moab, and settled down there. Moab was not only a foreign land, but for Israelites, who had endured hostility from the Moabites over the generations, Moab was also enemy territory. So this tells you a little bit about how desperate Elimelech and his family actually were. So life was already a struggle when suddenly Elimelech died. He died. We're not told what caused his death. But Naomi now is a widow. All she's got for family are her two sons. They continue on in life. They eventually meet and married two Moabite women, local women, named Oprah, Orpah and Ruth. And together they settled down in Moab, we're told, for about ten years. And then guess what happened? Next, just like their father before them, both men, both sons, both husbands died. Died. And suddenly, these three women were on their own. Of course, in ancient times, for a woman to lose her husband was not only an emotional nightmare, it also left her physically and economically and legally vulnerable. They had very few rights on their own. They needed special protection and care. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband, verse 5 summarizes simply and bleakly, she was alone. Well, not completely alone. Naomi still had her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, but together they set out on the road That would take them from Moab back to the land of Judah, back to Bethlehem. Naomi was heading home. You know, already some of us can identify maybe all too well with Naomi's pain, not to mention Orpah's and Ruth's. I mean, friends, what are the disappointments, the losses? the devastations that have been beating you up lately. This passage is inviting you into the story, inviting you to reflect upon the pain that you are bearing. Maybe it's not the shortage of bread, but for you, maybe it's the shortage of money. Or maybe it's a shortage of friendship. Maybe it's the loss of home whether recently you've been evicted or maybe because you simply suddenly feel helpless and all alone. Maybe it's the recent death of a loved one, the nightmare of cancer or a miscarriage. Maybe it's the death of a marriage, the death of an academic career or an athletic dream. And maybe like Naomi, it's a piling on of all these things in succession or all at once, and sometimes it just feels like it's too much to bear, doesn't it? Or maybe you haven't suffered these kinds of losses, but you are today controlled or paralyzed simply by the fear of them. Your thoughts, your choices, your relationships are ruled by the need to avoid that kind of pain, that kind of disappointment. What is it for you? How are you like Naomi today? Here's another question. Do you know that sometimes God uses that pain to bring us home, just like with Naomi back to himself? or deeper into his purposes for our lives. I don't know about you, but certain times when I feel most beat up in life, those times when I've looked back were also seasons of the greatest spiritual growth for me. Sometimes I was off track, in my communion with God, and it took some pain to bring me back on track. After all, grace grows best in winter. That's how 17th century Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford once described the mystery of our suffering when we're connected to Christ. Grace grows best in winter, and God brings summer in his own season." As we will see in the following chapters of Ruth, God was quietly at work in Naomi's and Ruth's lives, but at this moment in the story where we're at, Naomi doesn't know it and couldn't see it, and maybe neither can you. And in fact, here's another way in which you might be able to relate to Naomi and her story. Naomi was angry. Maybe you are too. That's one of the great things about this book, this book of Ruth. It's, it's so real. It's, so, it's raw. You know, the characters here aren't superheroes. They're very, very much like us. If you look at the story more closely, Naomi is a spectacularly human mix of bitterness, faith, and love. You might notice this complicated mix in her story, you might notice them even in your life, too. Naomi, you know, she was full of bitterness. You might even say, how could she not be, given all that she had been through? We see it in the way that she per- tries to persuade her daughters-in-law to leave her and return home when she says to them in verse 13, it's more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. See, in her pain, she feels like God is treating her like an enemy. Have you ever felt that way? And when she finally arrives in Bethlehem, her hometown, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, lovely, or delightful in Hebrew, Naomi tells the women of the town in verses 20 and 21, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You can hear her broken heart, her wounds. She's bitter. Have you, beloved, become bitter towards God? towards other people because of your pain. And I ask you not to condemn you, but rather because this passage tells us about Naomi's anger, but interestingly does not condemn her for it, but rather seems to commend her for bringing it out to light. Listen to what one commentator, David Atkinson, wrote about this. He says, what is impressive is the truthfulness of her life before God. There's no hiding of the feeling, no pretense that her anger is not before God. There is no hiding, no pretense, no sweeping aside with either stoic upper lip stiffness, nor with false affirmations that all in fact feels well. Naomi does not hide her deepest feelings from God. How about you? Naomi was also full of faith. She was bitter, but she was also full of faith. For all her sorrows, she still acknowledges God. She still turns toward God. She addresses him in verse 20 as the Almighty, even as she complains. In fact, it's because she knows about his character and his nature that the cognitive dissonance seems to rupture and wreck her peace so much. She can't believe that the God that she's grown to know could do this to her. In verse 13, she still calls him by his personal covenant name, Yahweh, translated here, the Lord. In verse 8, she actually shows that she trusts God's character enough To long for God to show up in their lives. She hasn't run from him. She hasn't so turned from him or soured towards him that she no longer even appeals to him. No, she actually blesses her daughters-in-law even almost in order to pray for them. May the Lord show you kindness. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She still has flickers of faith, even in her grief. And Naomi was also full of love. It really is remarkable, in verse 8, we're told that Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. If you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And again, in verse 11, return home, my daughters. Why would you come? with me. This is Naomi really trying to cut them loose from any obligation they might feel to take care of her, that they might be able to move forward in their lives, that they might be able to find a place of security, of rest, and flourishing. Possibly, she's thinking, with another husband, possibly with a new family, possibly removed from their vulnerability, with spiritual rest and security, as well. I mean, who's like this, right? In the midst of the near torturous pain that she's enduring, Naomi is thinking about someone else. She's concerned about their well-being. She's putting them even before herself. She's willing to give up the one thing that she's got left in her family in order to provide her daughters with their own family. In other words, she's forfeiting her future for theirs. That's love. Do you know a love like that? Because it's so tempting to be selfish and to only be concerned about our own pain when we're hurting most, isn't it? It really is. And here's Naomi forfeiting her future for theirs. Which gives us such a bright glimpse of the love of Jesus for us, doesn't it? Jesus, who never stops loving even in his deepest moment of pain. Jesus, who even while hanging on the cross and suffering looks out upon the people and prays on their behalf to the Father. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If that were me, I probably would have said, they sure as heck know exactly what they're doing. Do something about it. How different is Jesus? One who offers suffering love, one who loves in suffering. How different is Jesus? How different is Naomi? See, Naomi was full of bitterness and faith and love simultaneously. She's this wondrous mix, this package, which is really how life works, doesn't it? It's not so neat and tidy. That's the blessing of a passage like this, a story like this. Life is full of chaos and all of our brokenness and all of our faith. and all of our self-centeredness and self-pity and all of our love. God is calling us to wade through it. To even move through our pain, which raises the question, what did Naomi need in order to move through this period of disappointment? To grow through her devastation and her loss? Well, really, that question gets answered through the whole book of Naomi, so we'll answer that throughout the next four weeks. But this passage, chapter 1, gives us a little bit of a glimpse. And it suggests that Naomi actually needed three things. And they were this, a vision of the providence of God. Secondly, tears before God. And thirdly, a rich experience of the kindness of God. God gives her a glimpse, a vision of the providence of God. What is providence? Providence is a theological term. That refers to the way in which God in his power governs and watches over and rules over all things, all the details of life. It's God's care for our lives. It's his movement of circumstances around him for our greater good. This is God's sovereignty at work in day-to-day living. And what we notice in verse 6 is that the author of this passage points us to God's providence when he says, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return from there. What you have to notice here is that what is not said is that after being devastated, Naomi at some point... Heard that the crops in her hometown were growing again. And it doesn't also say, simply, that at home the rains fa- finally came or the economy had improved. No, the author gives us a theological God lens to interpret those events as being a gift from the hand of God. Naomi was noticing that God actually was providing for his people. Something had happened in Bethlehem. It was good to return. Literally, it says, the Lord had visited his people. He had come down with his grace and loved them by granting them food. You see, Naomi needed a little bit of a glimpse of the reality that God had not abandoned her or his people. She needed even a, a passing glance of God's goodness. Somewhere located in her life and in the world. She needed to see that God was in control. That God was the provider of his people. You notice it didn't solve all of her pain. It didn't resolve her Every trouble. It didn't answer all of her immediate questions about the loss of her husband, the loss of her sons, but it did renew her confidence in the character of God. The confidence that we need to know that God works and directs all things, even when they are a mystery to our eyes, for our good and for. His glory, And in fact, if you were to read ahead and understand where this story is going, we'll see that it's actually through these painful circumstances that God is directing the lives of this little family. In order that Naomi might return to her hometown Bethlehem. So that Ruth, her daughter-in-law, might also settle down there. That Ruth might become the grandmother of a shepherd boy named David, who would become Israel's greatest king. David, one of whose descendants God promised would become the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and that that Savior would one day be born in Bethlehem, the great, 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 great grandson of Ruth, and his name was Jesus. You see, Naomi couldn't see that But you can. We can. God doesn't always answer these questions immediately. But we can grow in our trust in his character, that he holds our lives in the palms of his hands. That he's loving us even in our pain and even in our wounds. Because speaking of Jesus, when we look at the cross, it wasn't even clear that day what God was up to, you know? We needed the perspective of not only time, but the revelation of God to explain to us what God was doing. You see, in real time in history, God always seems to be doing a secret thing beyond what human eyes can see. And so this is an invitation then. In your pain to look at the sweep of history, to look at the sweep of all the evidences of God's good character that may or may not answer the immediate cries and questions of your heart, but at least give you firm footing to believe that God is in control and that God surely loves you. God gave Naomi a glimpse, a vision of his providence. He also gave her the grace of tears. I mean, you saw it here in verse 9. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, when it came time for them to depart, were told they wept aloud. That could also be rendered, they lifted up their voices and wept. And in verse 14, at this, they wept aloud again. There's real spiritual value, friends, to just letting the tears It's a human response, but, dear friends, it's also a godly response. For you to be honest about the wounds that you feel, the ruptures that you encounter, the hurts that you're processing, to do this before God, not to run from him, but to bring these things to him, and to bring them to one another, not to run from one another and hide, but to bring them before one another and hide. I was so impacted talking with Yancey one time when we were talking about the sorrows and pains of some people in our church. When almost in passing he mentioned just the value of letting the tears flow and to let them drop and not to lift a finger to wipe them. Because there's something holy about letting yourself dare to take the risk to be that vulnerable. To let the tears roll down your cheeks and not to flinch for a second in shame or embarrassment. Not to flinch for a second feeling like you need to cover up and hide. Not to flinch for a second feeling like you need to apologize for your pain. But to let the tears drop to your cheeks, to your laps, to the ground. And to let someone else swoop in with care and affection and mutual tears. Most especially to give space for your God to sweep in with care and affection and mutual tears. You see, as Paul Miller, who has done such wonderful work on the book of Ruth, wrote a great book called A Loving Life, as he said about this matter, one of the best ways to deal with bitterness and self-pity is not to try to control them by stuffing them, but to expose your heart to friends. The exposure of bitterness and self-pity can open the door to grace. If bitterness is stuffed, it can become, and it becomes, a spiritual cancer that can destroy your soul. Beloved, will you exercise the gift of tears? Will you dare not to bottle it up or try to deal with that thing that you're going through right now on your own? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to invite over? Who are you going to tell? Who are you going to... Lovingly demand that they might bear that burden with you. Avail yourselves of the gift of tears. Thirdly, Naomi not only was given a vision of God's providence, she was not only given the gift of tears, but thirdly, she was given the gift of kindness. Of kindness. It's an amazing thing. Naomi tells these daughters-in-law of hers to move along and really to forget her. They resist. It's what we see in verse 10 here. When they said to her, no, 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 we'll go back with you to your people. And then Naomi in verse 11 and following argues with them a little bit more. No, you've got to understand. It's not going to get much better for me. And you don't want to waste your chance to build a new life for yourself. Go, go, go. And finally, Orpa heeds the demands of Naomi. And at this, they wept aloud again, we're told in verse 14. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth, but Ruth, the interruption of the grace of God and kindness, but Ruth clung to her. The language that Naomi used to describe how Ruth had cared for her all along was kindness, reflecting the kindness of God himself. Kindness. The old Hebrew word translated kindness there is hesed. Hesed is this wonderful combination in the Bible between loyalty and love. It's covenant love. It's promised love. It's not casual love. It's not convenient love. It's loyal love. As Paul Miller puts it, Hesed combines commitment with sacrifice. It's one way love, it's love without an exit strategy. And this is what Ruth gives to Naomi. This is what Naomi needs for her healing. It's a surprising love, you know, because Ruth, after all, was an unlikely source of this love. Sure, she was a daughter-in-law of this suffering woman, Naomi. But she also was, it was repeated again and again, a Moabitess, a foreigner. Originally a worshiper of other gods, foreign to the covenant God of this kind of chesed love. To the original readers, Ruth would have been viewed with suspicion, maybe even as an enemy. The similar effect is achieved when Jesus, telling the story of the Good Samaritan, makes a hero out of one who would have been an enemy that others would have dismissed, not possibly the source of any good or kindness or righteousness. Here again, Ruth, the Moabitess, we're told again and again and again is God's instrument of delivering to Naomi the very one-way love that her soul desperately needed. Ruth, who essentially, in refusing Naomi's love to give up her future for the sake of her daughter's-in-law, Ruth then turns the table and gives up hers for her mother-in-law, who essentially gives up on any opportunity to build for herself her own family in order that she might be family to Naomi, who otherwise would have been alone. This is sacrificial love of all sacrificial loves, giving up on having protection from the relationship she'd have with a husband, giving up on having children from returning to her home and the comfort and the familiarity of her home culture stripping down herself to having really nothing but God as she follows her mother-in-law to now this foreign land called Bethlehem. That's what love does. That's what love is. Naomi is beginning to be healed by such kindness and by such love. Ruth even offers this multi-standard promise. It's an oath. Where she says in verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. (laughs) Do you just hear the the, the, The thoroughness of her commitment, the intensity, and the whole life nature of all that she's giving herself to. And oh, doesn't it just bring us right up to the doorstep of the cross? Giving us such a clear, clear picture of the very same kind of love that Christ offers to us. Ruth clung to Naomi physically, literally. The hands of God wrapping himself around Naomi in the suffering times through the arms of Ruth. Just as Jesus himself clings to you by covenant promise. Jesus, who gave up everything, who was forsaken for the sake of you and me who died on the cross, who was ripped apart from the deep fellowship that he had at home with Father and Spirit. Jesus, who was stripped down physically and literally, naked on the cross, but also stripped down from all the favor of God as the wrath of God was poured upon him in our place for our sins because of the love and the mercy of God. Oh, dear pained and wounded ones, devastated by your suffering, do you see Ruth clinging in chesed love to Naomi? More than that, do you see your Savior Jesus clinging to you? The story in this chapter is an tied up with a neat and tidy bow. You might have noticed Ruth offers this incredible love. Naomi never says thank you. They go into town together, and all Naomi has to say is change my name, I'm bitter. The story is still continuing on. It's not neat and tidy at this point. Naomi's still reeling from her pain. She's still bogged down, even stuck in her bitterness. Ruth is with her mother-in-law, but emotionally she's alone. So much is still, so much is still unresolved. That's because this story is real. It feels like real life, doesn't it? And it's still being written. See, in the book of Ruth, there's still now chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. And in your life, there's still chapter 2. Upcoming, in chapter 22 or chapter 122, the story is still being written. But you see here, the chapter 1, the first act of Ruth's story, it ends in verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And so I wonder if you notice the story opens with Naomi leaving Bethlehem, But the story closes with Naomi returning home. One of the first words of this story is famine. Now one of the last words in the Hebrew text is barley. It's the beginning of the harvest of barley. See, this was the end of a chapter full of tragedy and loss. But it's also the beginning of a harvest of redeeming, grace. Dear suffering friends, maybe God's about to turn the page in your story too. Let's pray. We want to believe this. We want to know that you're near and not far off from our hurts and our fears. We pray that you would enter on in, that you would heal us and give us strength. Do to us as you did to these women many years ago. And we pray that you would do it through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.